It's Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History at Cal State Fullerton. My name is Benjamin Cothra. I'm an associate professor of history here at CSU Fullerton, and this is our first podcast spotlighting the activities of the Center for Oral and Public History, our projects, our people, and our community. And today's guests are going to be Margie Brown Cornell. She's assistant professor of history here at Cal State Fullerton. And Kevin Cabrera, who's the executive director of the Heritage Museum of Orange County. We'll be talking today about a new project that's opening May 17th at the Heritage Museum called Taking a Stand, Legacies of Latina Activism in Southern California. Then later, we'll hear from Natalie Navarre, Center for Oral and Public History archivist, with Out of the Archives. But first, I wanted to help us get to know Margie Brown Cornell just a little bit more. She's the person heading up this project, taking a stand. Margie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Margie, I happen to know that you have pretty deep roots here in Southern California, and they actually have something to do with this project in a sort of taking the long view. Uh, where did you come from, and how did we get to this point in your career? Um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles in a small little neighborhood called Silver Lake. Um, and I, I remember I was in the seventh grade, and I brought home my history textbook and that explained the conquest of Mexico by the Spanish. And my mom kneeled down next to me by my bed and corrected the textbook and said, this story has been told wrong. And she went on to tell me what, you know, how she learned about the history. Um, and then I went back to school and I reported what I had learned. And from there, I kind of got a knack for history and I really loved learning about it. And um, went on, fought my way into history courses uh, where a teacher said I didn't have the chops or the skills. Where was this? This was at John Marshall High School in Los Angeles. It's in between, near Hollywood. Um, you obviously didn't listen. No, no, I kind of fought my way into the AP U.S. history class. But by the end, the teacher was like, you're kind of good at this. So when I went on to college, I knew I wanted to be a history major. Um, and uh, it was in college where I learned about Chicano studies and Chicano and Latina history. And I remember I read the work of Vicky Ruiz, um, her article Starstruck about Latin, um, adolescent Mexican-American youth, women in particular, uh, and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to study Latina history, and I did various research projects as an undergraduate, and I said, I want a PhD in history. Were you actually majoring in history as an undergrad? I was. I was a history major. Where? Mm -hmm. Where was that? At UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had some great mentors there, um, but none familiar with Latino history, or Latina history. I had several... Um, uh, professors in Chicano history, and that's where I was introduced uh, to Vicky Ruiz's work. Um, and so when I forged ahead and was looking at for graduate programs, I, I knew that's what I wanted to study. I wanted to recover uh, the stories of s women, you know, everyday women who, like my mentor Vicky Ruiz says, uh, live extraordinary lives um, and do extraordinary things, and I wanted to bring those to the surface. And, research and teach. Now, I think it's interesting that you read an article by a practicing Latina mm -hmm. historian, right. right? A prominent right. historian. Right. But then 
not too long after that, you're actually studying under this person. How did that work? Um, well, uh, Vicki Ruiz has a, a long legacy herself of training historians. Uh, it's her, it's one of her missions, right, is not just to tell the story herself, but teach others how to do it, how to do the research, how to become scholars. Um, so I, it was, this is funny, I was actually at a event, I was applying to graduate school. She was currently at Arizona State University, or I thought she was at Arizona State University, and I was at a forum at UCLA, and there was a speaker's announcement um, that she was now at UC Irvine. And so I, you know, raced home, I looked on the website, and there she was, she was at UC Irvine, and I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And I knew it would make my mom really happy that I wouldn't go off to Arizona, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> she always wanted me close home. Um, and I emailed Vicky Ruiz, or I put in an application. Um, I emailed her. She emailed me back, and it was kind of a little like kindred spirits, kind of, I saw your application. You know, we this. I think this would be a good match. And it was probably one of the decisions that um, forever has changed my life, working with her. And she was recognized recently, was she right, not, for her right, work? Right. She she was just at the White House this past fall, where she earned the um, National Medal of Humanities in the Humanities. It's terrific. Yeah. It's and you're carrying on that legacy now. Well, I can only hope so. Yeah, giving, <laughs> it, giving it a try. You know, yeah. it's interesting that your mother didn't want you to go too far away, which was Arizona, right? But a lot of... Um, parents feel that way, particularly in minority communities. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that? Because a lot of your students are, right. are in that situation right. as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard balance to, to make because I think family connections are like first and foremost, right? Um, and they're oftentimes posited in contrast to like success, like moving and being ambitious, right? So. Um, I went away to college, and that was a really hard um, step for my mom to understand, especially if there was a college just down the road, right? Like, why would you have to? You know, in Mexico, we just go to the one just down the street. You know, she didn't go to college. Um, I'm the first generation of my family to, to go to college. Um, but so that was a learning experience. Um, and I think what... I, at least what I do is try to create well, the highest caliber of educational experience for students who, just because they live at home and stay at home should not compromise their ambition or their success or what they have access to. So um, I think it's just a reality for a lot of our students, just that choice, that kind of, um, to conceive of leaving home is something that is almost learned, right? It's practiced um, through example or through encouragement. So I think it's a, an individual choice, but often it's just a reality that how to make the most of being local, right? Right. So you found your way all the way to Irvine, California, <laughs> not too far from us We're here in Fullerton, just neighbors down the road. Mm -hmm. And how did you find your purpose there? How did you find a topic that you could live with? Because when you find a topic at the dissertation level, mm -hmm. you're, you're with it forever, pretty much, right? right. So, so how did that happen? Well, um, let's see. I was in, for our second year, 
we have to have a research, we do a research paper, it's part of the curriculum, and I was looking at a, a few topics. I, I had done research on Mexican immigrant women to the United States who had kind of defied the border and policies that limited their access, um, but I wanted to look at something that hadn't quite been explored as much. Um, so I was interested in studying the 19th century, women in the 19th century. Um, and Vicki said, oh, we just got some letters uh, in at Special Collections UCI. And it, it was actually my dad who said, have you ever noticed that all these women of the, the Spanish-Mexican era, they're marrying white men, right? And so I wanted to look at that dynamic, the intermarriage, and these, the role these women played in their community. So he kind of led me onto that idea, and Vicky said, they're these letters. And so I mined these letters. I spent a considerable amount of time with these letters and just kept, there were, there were a series written by just one woman. I mean, the practice of writing a letter every single day to people near or far, her contacts, just, you know, what she was saying about her daily life. Um, and that kind of blossomed into a dissertation project uh, on this family. And you finished that, and then what did you do before you came to Cal State Fullerton? So I was living in uh, the D.C. metro area. I was living in Arlington, Virginia, and I had uh, done some teaching with the UCDC program, and I had done a fellowship, a postdoctoral fellowship with the Latino Studies program with the Smithsonian Institution, um, and just kind of figuring out some next steps, being exposed to the museum world, and, you know, how is history discussed and understood in outside of the classroom. How is it practiced? So that was that was a lot of fun. That was what I was doing out there. And trying to make California history relevant at the national level, right? So that was often a question I got. You know, so why why should we care about these Latina women over in California here in in DC, right? At the national level. And, and what what was your answer to that? Well that um, these women teach us important uh, lessons about how the country expanded, about the communities that were incorporated after 1848, about how communities are shaped by people in everyday life. Um, so I, I had to really kind of tell the story through through a local but significant like national trends that women are doing this throughout the nation, mm -hmm. right? And there are connections we can make um, that show sort of a pattern of practice, but then also um, the atypical, the, the uniqueness of looking at particular communities um, and the dynamics they, that are unfolding there. And I think that's what a lot of our projects here at the center are about, looking at our local community for projects and themes that actually have great significance. Um, they have significance here, but also beyond our region. So we welcomed you with open arms mm. to Cal State Fullerton as another public historian. Um, I want to ask you about this new project coming mm -hmm. up, but first, could you tell me what kinds of courses do you teach and what do you really love teaching? Um, gosh, that's a, that's a hard question because I, I end up loving all my classes. Um, so I teach courses in public history, which is exposing students to the methods and practices of history in the public, right, which is outside the classroom. Um, I teach courses in U.S. women's history. I uh, taught a class in U.S. Latino history, uh, history of the U.S. West. Um, so they're all, they're all 
awesome classes that I enjoy teaching. Uh, I like to get the students energized and start, you know, why they're taking this class, why they're interested in this particular field. Um, and yeah, no, but, but you love all your children equally. I do, yeah. I do, okay. I do, I do. Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I want I want to break from them sometimes, but right. I come right back to them. Right, right. And, and they I'm, each have a different dynamic, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm feeling the need to do a U.S. Women's History class. Like the kind of collective or the community that's formed in the classroom based on the topic is, is slightly different in each class, but all, all very good. We keep coming back for more. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that leads to this project, which actually came out of a class or it's being assisted by a class? It's it's kind of a little bit of both, um, but probably being more assisted by the class, right? So one of the things that um, in coming to Cal State Fullerton that I wanted to do was just, you know, make this connection. It's been on my mind quite a lot is this intersection between U.S. Latino history and public history where it makes sense, it seems obvious that they would intersect, especially in a place like Southern California where the demographics just, you know, are, are shifting and uh, predominantly Latino um, communities. Uh, but in terms of public history, is, are, is the programming, our exhibits, our um, educational uh, programs at local, re reflecting these changes. And then in U.S. Latino history, it's, um, Studies are very much uh, framed by community studies, but that doesn't mean the same thing as public history, right? So how can we bring these two together? So I kind of made a decision um, when I arrived here that my public history classes would engage the local community and they would be Latino history and public history, or public history is Latino history. Um, so the last time I taught the practicum class, we partnered with Rancho Camulos up in um, Ventura County. So we spent time with, and Kevin was in this class, right? Um, looking at 19th century social and cultural relationships that we found in uh, Rancho Camulos, which was an old um, Mexican title that was maintained in the Del Valle family for generations. Um, so then when I came up to teach my, the subsequent public history classes, they all had this lens of doing U.S. Latino history. Um, so last semester when I did the intro, we focused on the National Park Service has a Latino studies initiative where they are promoting and encouraging um, different historical institutions or cultural institutions to pick up Latino history and they offer some thematics and um, sources and um, frameworks. So I kind of trained my students in that, you know, how would you tell a local story using these tools? Um, and it kind of grew, grew from there. And then working with uh, our colleagues at the Center for Oral and Public History um, on larger projects, like Dr. Fisakis is doing her Women in Politics and Activism, so we're trying to have a sort of harmony across these different topics and classes that we teach. And how did this turn into an actual exhibition project? Um, so, let's see, I'm trying to think back of uh, the steps. Um, well, we had, uh, with graduate students and other students and uh, faculty, thinking of a project to that I would teach, right? I needed a project to teach. Um, so I merged this idea of doing Latina history 
with a project um, that would guide the class. Um, so we, I decided to take four women and just focus on four women, kind of as a test run. Um, and we were looking for a location uh, where that could, uh, find, where this project could find a home. And um, I was referred to J.L. Moeller, a graduate student that Kevin, over at the Heritage Museum, um, was open to exhibits and uh, new materials and new ideas. Uh, so we connected, and uh, Kevin was graciously opening open to the exhibit, the project. I think we better bring in Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kevin, you're the executive director of the Heritage Museum of Orange County, but that sounds like you're not one of us. You actually are one of us, are you not? I am. I am one of, I am a titan. Um, um, I did my undergrad here and my graduate studies here as well. So I am a product of Cal State Fullerton of the Center of Oral and Public History and I mean the tools that I learned from professors like Margie and and yourself actually I took a Civil War course with you I don't know if you remember That's, oh I remember it well um, and Dr. Fasekis and some other great teachers um, I think really prepared me to to uh, step into the field of public history um, at a museum what sorts of skills do you think uh, you developed here? What, what, what did the program foster in you, do you think? Um, obviously critical thinking, um, how, to, um, how to research, how to look at primary source documents, how to look at secondary source documents, how to weave these narratives, these themes together to tell a story, um, um, creating your own um, primary source documents I, I loved during oral histories um, and so that was you know my 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 fun class and then what can come out of oral histories um, presentations um, um, that I've done with Carrie and Natalie um, these oral history presentations of, I've done that in my work outside of Cal State Fullerton not just as a student um, project but at the museum because they're extremely valuable and they sh and they're very good at telling the story of a community or of a group or um, yeah uh, it strikes me that a lot of our students they understandably they come to college and they may not have heard of oral history before they may not have heard of public history before but sometimes they get really excited by the notion why do you think it, it is such a, a light bulb that that shines for students when they they actually get a chance to to think about these new ways of doing history I think because it's it places the student at the center of the of the the research it is the student that gets to go out and find these narrators do the research do the preliminary research to find if they have a specific topic and then who were the key players or you know, people that were involved in this specific topic, and it allows them to go out and actually form relationships with these, with these people, who, for the most part, are just normal people that just saw something wrong with their neighborhood, or saw something wrong with their community, or saw something wrong at school, and wanted to make a difference for not just themselves, but for the community, for their families, for their children, and I think just being at that heart of that it just really engages you to 
kind of push forward and say, you know what, this is awesome. I'm, I'm making this difference now. Do you see that with your students, Margie, oh, yeah. doing these projects? Right, yeah, no, I think that when uh, students take ownership, and it's kind of, that's the, the great thing about the local, right? That's how we can really maximize that our students are from the lo you know, the surrounding communities because those connections can be fostered and really um, center a study to, to then make other connections. So yeah, absolutely, I think that. And students here are very proud of where they come from and it, you know, shouldn't be kind of undermined or seen as like not real history but um you know how to be critical about it how to think of you know the region in new and innovative ways and uh, students always bring you know those insights and yeah what counts as history is at the heart of this though isn't it because a few decades ago history was thought of as uh, the leaders the, the the politicians the presidents the generals and a person's, an everyday person's story now in the, the practice we're talking about becomes extremely important to understanding certain historical questions, right? Right, absolutely. Um, and I see that with my students when they get excited too. I think they're excited about the same things. So Kevin, how did you uh, get, find your way to the Heritage Museum of Orange County? Um, it was probably about five years ago I had first I started working for the city of Santa Ana and I was working in their local history room helping the archivist um, with their historical documents and um, doing some oral histories through their program and, and just really going out there and meeting other people within the community and um, we were contacted by someone from the museum because they were building um, they wanted to build a replica adobe um for their educational program now the if you know anything about, if you don't know anything about the heritage museum the museum's been around for 30 years and it's always really focused on educational programs for students so we see about 18,000 students from kindergarten to fifth grade every year um which is pretty incredible for a history museum um and um so i went out there and for that summer um, I went out there with some youth that I was mentoring and volunteering with, and we made adobe bricks. And that adobe, those adobe bricks that we made, about 600, no, about 800 of them, turned into an adobe structure that is now used for their rancho program, or for our rancho program. Kevin, i got to say, that's a hard way to do history. <laughs> <laughs> that's like real hands-on. <laughs> that was really hands-on, but it was fun. It was really fun because you're working with the clay, you're working with the dirt, and we're actually making them like making the adobe bricks how they were made in the 1800s and yeah. prior to that. So it was a learning experience as well. Um, so what did they say? <coughs> Kevin makes really good bricks. Maybe we should hire him to run run this place. <laughs> um, I, I I finished that project. I left. I continued working with the city. Um, and then about six months later, I got an email from the director asking if I wanted to. Um, be one of their instructors for the educational programs and I was like yeah that sounds great my my job at the city was only part-time so it worked out well I was at the museum in the morning and the afternoon I was at the at the library the history room and um, about a few months after that the museum's curator or who managed their collection left and she knew that was that I was doing that at the library, so she asked me if I wanted to just step into that role. 
which I did. So I started managing our collection. And when I started managing our collection, then I really started to realize some of the really unique things that the collection had. Um, and I, and then I kind of questioned our director. I said, why don't we use these for like displays and exhibitions and even supplemental material for educational programs? And she really didn't have an answer. She said, well, we know that we just got those things from the families and some other people that have dropped off stuff, but we never really thought about it. And I think that's where my, you know, historical training um, from Cal State Fullerton came in. I said, well, you can really utilize this stuff. And so then I started producing little smaller exhibitions. And um, then last March, she, our, the director resigned and she took a job at Yellowstone National Park. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess she had mentioned to the board Kevin would be a really good candidate um, to really take my position. And so they hired me as interim director, and then I was interim director until October, and then they hired me full-time as director. And so it's interest, interesting, because when people ask me, like, how did you get here? And it's like, I literally started as a volunteer five years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's crazy, like a lot of hard work, um, but I mean, it's been really fulfilling and I feel really blessed. You know, I come from the museum world and a lot of people got into the work by volunteering or by being an unpaid intern and then they they work hard and they impress and suddenly they their value is 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 seen by key people and they find their way into the field sometimes that's how it works mm-hmm. no that's true and and um and one of the things that i've been able to do is work with some college interns and even high school interns and as soon as their internship ends, we hire them because they have a really good work ethic and they love the place and they add value to the museum. And And it's true. I, I think a lot of people say it's so hard to get into the museum field. And it's like, you know what? I just started volunteering. And I didn't just volunteer at the museum, but I started volunteering at other organizations and just started to know people. And I think that's really what helped me. And I And at that point, I didn't even know that I wanted to go into local history. That was like I had just finished undergrad and I was taking some time off and I was wanting to go back to grad school to study Roman history. Mm-hmm. And at that point, that junction, that like little two-year gap is when I really started to do local history. So I was like, when I'm going back to grad school, no more Roman history. It's going to be community local history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really, I mean, it was just, I don't know. And now we can claim you as one of our... Orland Public History success stories yeah. at the Heritage Museum. Could you tell us a little bit more about the museum for listeners who may never have heard of it or have heard of it but haven't visited? What sorts of experiences can they have there? <clears throat> so we're a natural and cultural history museum, and we focus on Orange County and the surrounding area of Orange County history. Um, like I mentioned, we do a lot of educational programs. So the, the students come through and they'll um, do programs that focus that kind of enhance their curriculum at school. So we have local history, uh, local history units. So they learn about the, um, the families. We have two historic homes, the Kellogg House and the Mag House. They learn about those families and what their kind of contributions to Orange County was. Um, we have a gold rush program. Um, we do a rancho program and then we also do a gardening program. We're on 12 acres of property, so it's really nice. Um, we have four and a half acres of wetlands, or four and a half acres of natural areas. We have two wetlands, 
and then we do native plant restoration, so we replant California natives, and we have a farm, so we grow produce and vegetables and um, and um, some local crops as well. We have a citrus citrus orchard, rose garden. It's a really really beautiful spot, and um, and we recently starting to do more exhibits. So a couple years ago, we had a, a Smithsonian traveling exhibition come through the museum. Um, I've helped produce a few museum, um, few exhibitions on local history. And then next summer, we're having another Smithsonian traveling show come through on um, sports and mm -hmm. how sports is really interconnected to a community. Mm -hmm. So we're looking forward to that. If listeners want to get involved in the Heritage Museum, what, what do they need to do? Um, they can go onto the website, go to heritagemuseumoc.org. Um, we have a list of all of our staff, our volunteer coordinator, myself, our educational director, um, and they can send us an email if they want to volunteer, if they want to intern, or if they just want to come visit. We're usually we're open Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays to the public, and um, we have the houses open, and, and we're doing some more kind of outdoor static displays kind of enhance the, the visitor's experience. Now, a really good way for people to get acquainted <coughs> with your museum is to visit a new exhibit mm -hmm. opening that Margie's been working on with her class and your museum is hosting called Taking a Stand, Legacies of Latina Activism in Southern California. Uh, why, should, why should people get excited and come to the Heritage Museum to visit this new exhibit um, uh, well Kevin what <laughs> I mean <laughs> I think it's some really unique stories that maybe people didn't know haven't learned about um, I'm just thinking about two women we have on display did some real interesting activism here local to Orange County so for example Modesta Avila she was a resident of San Juan Capistrano and uh, she inherited land through family members and the train, the I think it's the Santa Fe Railroad, laid tracks across her land and she walked out a few steps from her front door and put a stake in the ground and said the train can't pass here until I'm paid from my land. Um, and so this is like a local story that kind of reflects a real critical moment in U.S. expansion and industrial development in Southern California. Um, another woman, Luisa Moreno, she was a labor organizer and she organized um, women cannery workers right here in Fullerton. Um, and so it's a little bit of like women who eventually, you know, were speaking to national, regional issues but working at the very local level, you know, we could go to the address where this factory was just down the street. Um, so that's uh, in terms of content, <laughs> right. what people will get. Well, Kevin, that had to be attractive to you in terms of the mission of your museum to get a chance to host this. Definitely, definitely. Um, um, our mission is to really kind of promote and, um, and to um, show Orange County history and local history. So when I heard about this project, this was definitely something that um, I thought would be great for the museum to host. And, and even going back to like my school days here, and I was, when I was working at the museum, not as in this position, but the back of my mind was just like always, the museum really needs to partner with the center and the history students here because I saw all the great work that the students and the professors were doing here. Um, 
and anything that's happening, any sort of project that's locally known to Orange County or even just the region of Southern California, um, it should definitely be displayed outside of this, outside of the campus because it will attract a larger audience, not just students. And so this was always like on the back of my mind, like when I get up there, I know I'll make sure I'm, I'm going to talk to Marjorie, I'm going to talk to Dr. Fasekis, and we'll we'll have these projects at the museum. So this is, I'm, I'm hoping, the first of many projects to come at the Heritage Museum that's going to be produced by staff and students here um, at the center and the history department. Now let's talk a little bit about this production because I've worked on exhibitions before and they don't just happen, right Margie? They don't no. just happen. So what sorts of tasks went into developing this exhibit and what sorts of things did your students do to help out? How did this work? Right, so I, um, the, the topic was and title was already selected. Um, so students kind of had a framework, a skeleton to sort of build out, but still they, um, they had to mine the archives, so we had a team of students, uh, the curatorial team who was charged with telling the story, finding the sources, finding the images, finding documents um, that would uh, bring the stories to life. Uh, so, you know, students took particular women profiled in the exhibit and that's, they were charged with doing the research. They were also charged with writing them up, right? So writing exhibit labels, um, which is very different. They all commented on how different it is to write an exhibit label versus an academic paper. Um, and they all learned a lot and were challenged by that exercise. Um, I had a team of students. Um, when we first met with Kevin, we learned how education is a core um, objective of the our goal of the Heritage Museum. So I had a team of students working on educational materials that would align the content of the exhibit with the California state standards, um, but also mirrored um, some of the educational programming that was already taking place at the Heritage Museum. So they had to kind of assess, adapt new materials, and design something new. Uh, we had a design team that kind of dealt with the nuts and bolts, like literal nuts and bolts, mm -hmm. right? We'll be installing this on Monday where they'll be drilling. And <laughs> but budget issues, concept, layout um, of a design of an exhibit, and then finally a promotional team, a public relations team. So how do you contact the media about these types of projects? How do you design a website? Uh, what's the procedure for getting permission to reproduce images, right? Like all these kind of steps that... Um, you know, our real life, right, in the museum world that, that, that staff have to, to be familiar with. And I think uh, it was a really neat experience to, to figure out how to teach that mm -hmm. and execute at the same time. And I think for the students as well. I said, you know, you're, we're rolling up our sleeves. It's going to be like Top Chef, right? You're like, gonna, <laughs> you're going to learn it and then do it right away. <laughs> like, um, apply it right away. So. And they're doing the exact, you were right, they're doing the exact same types of things they would do if they actually worked in a museum situation as part of an exhibit team. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. And all of that hard work, some of which is, a lot of which is yet to come, right, over the next 10 days or so, is going to culminate in an opening yeah. happening on May the 17th at 5.30 at the museum. Kevin and Margie, could you tell us what's going to happen that night? It's a pretty special night. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so we'll have the opening reception. Um, we'll be uh, 
have some visitors. I think um, Vicky will be there, right? Mm -hmm. Vicky Reese. And yeah. and um, and a few of our um, the ladies that that are going to be um, featured, um, Luisa Moreno. No, no. not Luisa. Um, so Vicky Ruiz and um, Dr. Christine Valenciana, her mother is profiled um, here. So so they're going to be joining us to be able to chat with um, visitors. Um, the Heritage Museum, it's been a really nice pro uh, partnership because they're able to kind of put on the welcoming, right, mm -hmm. the hosting in terms of a reception with refreshments and entertainment um, and while we're doing the programming. Um, so there'll be some speakers and then um, there'll be an, uh, a short speaking program and then visitors will have a chance to view the exhibit and sit and chat with um, Emilia Castañeda and Ana Nieto Gomez who are two of the women profiled in the in the exhibit. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty exciting and it's been pretty challenging because you know these women are still living, right? So that was another thing the students, one student mentioned in particular was to do their story justice and to do it right, you know, because they're going to be right there. Um, and so, yeah, that was also. It, it had to be exciting, though, to, to be able to work directly with these, these women. Right, yeah, yeah. Had you known them before this project? Or? So I had, I had known their stories, um, but not them personally. And, um, yeah, I've been kind of in awe thinking, I'm corresponding with, you know, I've corresponded, Emilia Castaneda is 90 years old, and she's fighting the fight. I mean, she was up in the state legislature talking about um, repatriation or unconstitutional deportation um, in the 1930s uh, to get legislation. Uh, so her, her corner of the exhibit speaks about that, but I mean, so I've been in correspondence with her daughter, and just this, um, this activism, this woman at 90 years old, of age has to kind of keep telling the story and Dr. Valenciana told me the story she carries these pamphlets with her about repatriation and she gives them to everybody she sees like she goes to the doctor <laughs> <laughs> um, so this telling the story is is so important and then Ana Nieto Gomez I had learned about her also in, in history books right um, Vicky Ruiz's book um, she's an activist with the um, LA County sterilization cases, um, Madrigal versus Quilligan, which we had a screening here, so she was an activist uh, to get attention for that. Um, but yeah, then to, I had some friends who had interviewed her who do Chicana, um, the Chicano movement, um, and I said, can I, can I get her email address? Can you tell her we're working on this? And she's been nothing but lovely. I mean, just honored, humble, but also, you know, yeah, let's tell this story. It's been, it's been great. That's going to be a great night on May the 17th. Um, all the hard work uh, that everybody puts in, and then when you have some special guests like that, it's always, it's always really fun. So everyone should find their way to the Heritage Museum of, of Orange County. Now, how long will the exhibit run? How long do people have in order to, to see it? So the exhibit will run until July 31st, so the end of the summer. And then... Um, and we'll take it down, and and if we see that if it gets a really good response, then maybe we'll open it up again when we have some free time. But the space that we have the exhibit in is is needed for August, so we're just going to run it through the through summer. Margie, do you have a sense of how your students are feeling right now? Uh, probably a little bit of exhaustion, but maybe that's not all they're feeling. 
So this is funny because we talked about this. So in the early half of the semester, the research or curatorial team just felt like bombarded. I mean, they were like, you know, like, oh my gosh. And I said, don't worry, your part will end. And then another team is going to pick it up, right? And, and it's true, right? So now they're kind of at ease because we've gone to print, we've gone to production. Uh, and so now it's other teams that are their anxiety about like installing or finalizing the educational materials, preparing a survey or evaluation of the exhibit. Um, so yeah, but I think one thing that's really exciting about doing a project like this one in a partnership with um, the Heritage Museum is that it becomes real. Because I've taught this in a way where it's hypothetical and the stakes aren't so great. And it's also very hard to conceive of what it will look like until unless it's actually implemented so a few weeks ago when the designer we're working with laid out the you know what it would look like they're like oh even though you know, we had it's an exciting moment, right we it? we had looked at samples they they've been to museums they've done exhibit reviews and critiques and all that good stuff um but until they see what their work kind of how it's materialized it's I, I think it's going to be a very exciting moment when we, when we go as a group to see it, like in its finalized state. And not not to be biased because I'm a product of Cal State Fullerton, but I think that's, it, it sh it's it's testament to to the program itself here at Cal State Fullerton that these practicum courses really gives these students hand-on experience, and and it's and it's something that these students are going to take away and be like, wow, I. This was my first exhibit ever. And now they know all that goes into doing an exhibit. It's not easy at all. It's a lot of hard work, but their fruits of the labor are really paying off. Yeah, it's going to be a very exciting uh, evening on May the 17th. And now let's hear from Natalie Navarre, the Center for Oral and Public History archivist with Out of the Archives. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre, and I'm the archivist for the Center for Oral Public History. This segment of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. Every podcast cough has Out of the Archives is where I'll be highlighting certain oral histories and other findings from our collections. Throughout this segment, we'll be listening to clips of oral histories where narrators talk about repatriation. During the 1930s, while the U.S. was going through the Depression, roughly around a million Mexican and Mexican-Americans were forced out of the U.S. to Mexico. It wasn't called deportation. It was called repatriation. Quote, returning people to their native country, unquote. But more than half of the people that were repatriated were actually U.S. citizens of Mexican descent. I will play you five clips from four Latinas who lived through this time. The first two clips you will listen to comes from an oral history with Emilia Casaneda de Valenciana. This interview was conducted by her daughter and well-known oral historian for cough, Christine Valenciana, on September 8, 1971, for the Mexican-American Oral History Project. Listen as she discusses her feelings on repatriation and how she was treated by other children for being repatriated. So what do you think about this whole idea of a repatriation that you had to go through? Well, I don't like it. I don't think I'll, I'll ever like it. I mean, the way I was I was made to suffer. I feel that that uh, that that this uh, country should have done something for their citizens instead of getting rid of them like the way they did. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's the whole country involved. I'm sure. I don't think it's just one state. You can't just blame uh, the county, or you can't just blame the 
the state, you have to blame the whole government. As far as I'm concerned, the president, mm -hmm. not just uh, the, like I say, the county and the, and the state. Two more. Well, anyway, there was three girls, were the, which were the oldest, and then there was three boys, were the, the were the youngest. And I remember one of those, the oldest of the boys, he used to call me repatriada. And I don't think I, I felt that I was a repatriada because, you know, I was an American citizen. And maybe, maybe we were repatriados. Well, how could you be if you were born in the United States? Well, maybe they kicked us out of our, uh, out of our country to get rid of us, you know, to make room for, for Anglos. Mm -hmm. You know, how do I know? I'll never know. The next clip you will listen to is part of an oral history with Carmen Landeros. This interview was also conducted by Christine Valenciana on August 7, 1971, for the Mexican-American Oral History Project. Listen as she remembers when her sister was repatriated. As I say, the government both agreed to tell them to go back because there was no life here. So <clears throat> I remember she paid a, a penny a mile. If you wanted to be repatriated, that mm -hmm. meant that you were never going to come back for the, for some time. I don't remember how many for years. For good? It, for good. But she went, well, you know, by her own wish. And uh, and if you went like that, you had the right to, to take your furniture if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. she, uh, the only thing she took, I remember, was her sewing machine. Mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't want her to go. She was practically my second mother. She mm -hmm. brought me up. I was so sad and brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. What did we do? We had to be separated. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was hard on the both of us. The fourth snippet comes from an oral history with Rachel Gonzalez. This interview was conducted by Lucy McDonald on June 15, 1982, for the Orange County Mexican Colonial Oral History Project. She, too, talks about her memories from the Depression. Something that I can remember then that a lot of people was leaving for, uh, for Mexico. There were whole families that left from here. During the Depression time? During the Depression back time. To Mexico. To and why? Why? There was no work. There was no work. And uh, a lot of a lot of people claim that they were being deported, but then a lot of them uh, claim that they were telling them uh, they they would get free uh, transportation for for uh, Mexico. So a lot of them left. But I mean, really, I don't know what exactly what the what the truth was in that. Yeah, that was the time of the repatri repatriation. Yeah. But then the funny, uh, funny thing is that a lot of those children that, that left then, I mean, well, they left with their family, they came back. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were American citizens. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know how or, or, or what, or if they had their birth certificates, but a lot of them came back. Yeah. The last clip is from an oral history with Carmen Valencia. I am deeply familiar with this interview as I was the one who conducted it on October 23, 2013 for the Women, Politics, and Activism and Suffrage Oral History Project. Once I asked Carmen about her childhood, she remembered this sad time in history. There was a time during the Depression that wasn't too happy that uh, 
all the people of Mexican descent, of which we were part of, were told to leave because of the you know because of the depression. And so I remember my dad coming in one day saying, "Vámonos, ya nos vamos. Where you know where are we going?" He says, "We're going back to our homeland." This is my homeland. This is my children's home. No, no one really wants us here. We're leaving. And so we had a nice little home. I remember I had a dollhouse. I, these are the things I remember then. I remember crying, and I remember people running around like crazy, selling furniture, selling whatever furniture we had. We may not have had too much, but I remember a sewing machine. That meant a lot to my mom, and that had to go. Anyway, we packed up some blankets and pillows and pots and pans and got into the car and drove and drove and drove and drove all the way to, to Nuevo León, Monterrey, Nuevo León, and we lived there for a year. This is just a small preview of what we have here at Cough. I hope these clips have motivated you to listen to more oral histories. Also, you should come to our upcoming event, Taking a Stand, Legacies of Latina Activism in Southern California. This collaborative historical exhibition will begin with an opening event on May 17th that will open at 5.30 p.m. at the Heritage Museum of Orange County. Cal State Fullerton professor Dr. Brown Cornell has spearheaded this exhibit and has utilized the oral histories that I played for you. We hope to see you there, and thank you for listening to Out of the Archives. The exhibition is called Taking a Stand, Legacies of Latina Activism in Southern California. You're invited to the opening reception on Tuesday, May 17, 2016 at 5.30 p.m. at the Heritage Museum of Orange County. It's at 3101 West Harvard Street in Santa Ana. To RSVP for the opening reception, contact Kevin Cabrera, kcabrera at heritagemuseumoc.org, and then the exhibit opens to the public May the 18th and runs through July the 31st. I want to thank Margie Brown Cornell of the Department of History at Cal State Fullerton and the Executive Director of the Heritage Museum, Kevin Cabrera, for joining us today. You've been listening to Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History here at California State University, Fullerton. For our producer, Carrie Rael, this is Benjamin Cothra. Thanks for listening.